Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. But uh, I'm Billy Griffith here tonight uh, for our Emerging Revolutionary War, uh, Rev War Reverly, live with you, um, with author and historian Jack Kelly to discuss his new book, Valcor, the 1776 campaign that saved the cause of liberty. So Jack Kelly is an award-winning author and historian who lives and works in New York's Hudson Valley. Uh, he was, has published five novels and is the author of nonfiction works about the Pullman Strike of 1894, the Erie Canal, and on the history of gunpowder as well. He's authored two books on the Revolutionary War, uh, Band of Giants, The Amateur Soldiers Who Won America's Independence, and his newest work, Valcor, which was released in April that we will be discussing tonight. So Jack, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Billy. And before we get into the actual historical content, I want a little background on why you wrote this book. What got you interested in writing about the Battle of Valcor Island? Uh, well, I'd, when I wrote uh, Band of Giants uh, about five years ago, I covered um, various aspects of the war, and I was particularly intrigued by why this important uh, campaign on Lake Champlain in 1776, one of the most important years of the war, didn't get more coverage and why, why there wasn't more interest in it. And uh, I came to the conclusion, as I have been calling it, that this was the most important unknown battle of uh, the Revolutionary War. And so uh, it just seemed like a, a topic that and there are not that many topics uh, uh, related to the Revolutionary War that haven't been covered to a certain extent. And this was as a big topic, and yet uh, not a lot of books have been written about it. So I decided to, to go ahead and research it and get into it. And I always uh, thought it's interesting when it comes to battles that take place on water, because it's not really, it's tangible, but it's not tangible. You can't really walk out onto the water and stand where these vessels would have been fighting. And know there today near Valcour Island, there is uh, a monument to the battle. Yeah, so DAR put up a little uh, monument and mentioned uh, Benedict Arnold. And I think it's, uh, uh, to a certain extent, it's the participation and the major role that Benedict Arnold played in the battle uh, that was at least partly responsible for it not being covered as much uh, that the, the um, uh, people would rather sing the praises of George Washington than Benedict Arnold, even though George Washington was uh, uh, getting beaten pretty bad down in New York. <laughs> yeah, at that time he was uh, definitely the biggest loser so far. Arnold was one of the biggest winners. Um, so when it, writing this book, you mentioned how there's not too much out there already about it. Um, what was the biggest obstacle when putting together the manuscript? Uh, well, I think partly it was the temptation to go into too much uh, detail about the lead up to the to the battle, which was really the invasion of Canada. Um, the same area, this Fort Ticonderoga and uh, Lake Champlain were used uh, the year before by the Patriots to go up into Canada and take Montreal and then move on up to Quebec City. 
that's an interesting and and also I would have to say is somewhat uh, neglected um, uh, part of the Revolutionary War. I think it's a little embarrassing to think of the um, you know the freedom loving patriots. Their first impulse was to go up and invade another province, uh, as well as the fact that it was a complete disaster. So that the um, is uh, the the uh, campaign in 1776 really came out of that. A Canadian invasion, so it's, it's it's tempting to to get bogged down in that and not focus on just what happened in 1776. So I was um, I tried to cover it briefly, give it en enough context so people can understand it without going into too, into it too much. Yeah, and I think um, one of the interesting things is you know, talking about that part of the Canadian campaign. Everybody thinks once we uh, you know, fight the Battle of Quebec on New Year's Eve, 1775, that that's it, then we're out of Canada. But no, the American army is up there um, for the next five or six months. Yeah. So yeah. Um, kind of leading off of that, set the stage, like what's gone wrong for the American army in Canada now? Why are they going back to Ticonderoga? Uh, well, and, and not only were they up there, but they were, the Congress sent uh, uh, quite a few thousand uh, reinforcements up during the winter, and they would trudge all the way up there, a long supply line. Um, and part of the um, uh, fact was they just, they, they just wore themselves out trying to, they were besieging the city of Quebec, it was a walled city, they made no progress. And then and in the spring, the British um, sent over their um, uh, expeditionary army of which 10,000 of them landed in, um, in Quebec. Uh, as soon as the Redcoats appeared, um, the American army essentially collapsed and went retreated very quickly down the uh, St. Lawrence River, down the Richelieu River, and finally down Lake Champlain back to Ticonderoga, which is where they started out from. Um, and the other uh, big factor was that while they were in Canada, they contracted an epidemic of smallpox, and uh, that swept through the army. It was very um, uh, contagious disease, and when they finally got back to Ticonderoga and, and Crown Point, which is the other fort that they captured on Lake Champlain, um, of the 5,000 men who returned from Canada, uh, about 3,000 of them had contracted smallpox and had to be quarantined. and. Uh, so it was a really a devastated army uh, that um, that ended up down there in uh, in Ticonderoga, with given the task of stopping a British invasion that they knew was coming down the lake. And mentioning uh, how the army's being ravaged by smallpox, I think that major smallpox hospital that a lot of the men near Crown Point in Ticonderoga will be evacuated to is at the southern end of Lake George, and within the past two years or so, there was actually remains of Pennsylvania soldiers yeah. used to come to uh, smallpox, I think in the winter or in 1776, yeah. um, and, they found there. And and to call it a hospital would be um, a, a kind of a, um, uh, give the wrong impression. It was, uh, they've put up some uh, shelters, some shacks, um, uh, they slept on boards. Uh, they were lucky if they had a blanket and, um, virtually no medical care and they're eventually gathered to be uh, several thousand people in that in that essentially a camp really uh, and very few I think they had two or three doctors and some aides to care for them um, and the I give some of the uh, details about the smallpox illness in the book uh, and it was a, hor a horrific um, it, um, experience to go through if you live through it. There was about 10, 10% of people died, but um, uh, just very painful, very um, debilitating uh, fever, of course, the pox uh, all over your body. Uh, so it's, uh, it was a, a, an ordeal for the soldiers that had it. Yeah, because, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the bulk of the men who are going to be fighting the revolution like many other american wars too they're coming from rural areas so they haven't been exposed to yeah, spots yet. exactly so that, unlike the british army uh who, it was endemic enough in britain that most people got some version of it uh, during their childhood or teenage years and most of the british soldiers were immune yeah um so now I'm talking about lake champlain and its significance 
why are both armies fighting to try to control uh, this body of water? Well, the um, Americans had control in the beginning of the um, summer, or it was really July by the time they withdrew the army down to Ticonderoga. Um, they had control, but just barely. They had a several very small schooners and with cannon on them that they could prevent an army from sailing down. The, the British had, a, had plenty of transports to, to, to send their army down in what would have been large rowboats, really. Uh, but the transports would have been vulnerable if there was any Americans had a, a ships with a cannon on them. So um, both sides really began an arms race. Uh, and if the whoever could build the fleet the fastest and, uh, uh, and dominate the other side uh, would gain control, the British wanted to get control of the lake in order to attack Fort Ticonderoga. That would open up the prospect of, of going down to Albany and uh, then on to the down the Hudson River um, to really um, complement the attack that uh, the Howe brothers were making at the other end of the uh, corridor uh, to um, to take New York City. Um, the Americans were desperate to, to prevent that from happening because Washington was having, of course, a very hard time in New York to begin with. And um, to have a, the threat of an attack from coming down into his rear from New York would have been, I mean, from down the Hudson River from the north would have been uh, devastating to, and probably would have ended the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, especially at that point. And obviously, you know, John Burgoyne is going to be using the same exact invasion route. Right, the, the, yeah, the, this, uh, I, I mean, I can show a picture just to see how this works here. Uh, I'll, um, this is my book. And Uh, this, yeah, this is the uh, corridor from Quebec City down the St. Lawrence, down the Richelieu River, uh, down Lake Champlain, and there's Crown Point and Ticonderoga um, fairly close together, then down Lake George, all pretty much a water route. There was a brief uh, portage over to, the, to Fort Edward where they could then get on the Hudson River and go all the way down to New York. Albany, which is just down here, the Mohawk Valley. Uh, the other uh, uh, thing that the Patriots feared was that they would, um, if they got onto Lake Champlain, they could attack eastward into New Hampshire and then down and hit Boston as well from behind or down all, all, go all the way down to Connecticut. So it was like the back door to New England. Uh, so it was really a, a critical, very strategic uh, corridor, that whole uh, path from Quebec City down to New York City um, for the first two years of the war that was fought over back and forth. And so now moving on, um, I saw your next slide that you had coming. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know the high command for both sides of this theater and uh, try to focus too a little bit more on uh, Philip Schuyler, who a lot of people know of, but don't really know too much about because uh, he's someone whose role during the war is seemingly always overlooked, played such a huge part uh, when it came to the theater of operations in the north. Yeah, the, uh, the man on the far uh, left of the screen here is Philip Schuyler. He was an overall command. He was a, uh, one of the early major generals of the Continental Army. Uh, he was an Albany aristocrat. Um, interesting that he actually spoke Dutch at home, uh, as almost everybody in Albany in those days spoke uh, Dutch. Um, very wealthy was considered to be kind of a lukewarm uh, a patriot, uh, was not in favor of independence, and um, was quite sickly. So he mainly stayed in his mansion in Albany and um, um, uh, commanded from there. Um, the man on the spot at Fort Ticonderoga is in the center here is uh, uh, General Horatio Gates. Uh, Gates was a very experienced officer from having been in the, um, I think it was, got up to being a major in the British Army uh, and was in the British Army for years and had uh, sold his commission to come over to America just before the revolution. 
quite a radical uh, as far as uh, politics went. And, but he was also had been like Schuyler, he was not a battle general. They, uh, they both had uh, been in their previous military experience was in uh, as kind of staff officers that they were administrative people. Uh, and the third man who would actually be leading the fighting against the British was uh, on the right here, General Benedict Arnold. Uh, he served under Gates. Um, and he had virtually no experience, uh, military experience before the war started. Um, but um, I, I always say, you know, each of them uh, served a purpose. Schuyler was a genius of, um, of logistics and had been in the previous war, had been a, a supply officer. And he knew, and it was very crucial to get the supplies that they needed up to Lake Champlain, which was pretty much wilderness at that time. Um, and particularly nautical supplies to build the boats to, to stop the British. Uh, General uh, Gates was a, a genius of um, administration and they needed somebody that, that could restore morale, restore discipline, deal with the smallpox, organize the army that had come back there in, in great confusion, uh, rebuild the fortifications around uh, Ticonderoga and Gates was the man to do that. And um, it turned out that Benedict Arnold, first of all, there was a bonus, the fact that he had been a, a um, sea captain before the war. So he was um, uh, well up on sailing and uh, nautical um, <clears throat> um, matters, let's say. And also, um, Oh, that's um, a little technical difficulty there. And um, so anyway, um, it turned out that Benedict Arnold was really a genius of war itself. He, he, was, he had a great initiative. He had a great sense of, um, of uh, getting a jump on the enemy, uh, very aggressive, uh, of inspired leader of men, and, uh, and was um, uh, the the perfect person to lead this nautical or this you know naval battle uh, against the British uh, on Lake Champlain. And uh, I think another thing about Arnold that a lot of people don't um, know about is pre-revolutionary war life, but he also used to buy horses in Canada. So he was very familiar with that entire uh, Lake George, Lake Champlain, briefly St. Lawrence River uh, water route. And it was even, you know, him, he knew about Port Ticonderoga before the war even began and, and pitched the idea to capture it to the Massachusetts Committee yeah. of Safety. Right, which was a, a really crucial move. Uh, and I think it was three weeks after Lexington and Concord, they took um, Fort Ticonderoga, which hadn't even heard the news yet that the war had started. And um, if they hadn't done that, it's hard to see how the Patriots could have won the war because uh, the British would have controlled, kept control of Lake Champlain. Um, they wouldn't have had the guns that they moved from Ticonderoga down to take Boston back. So it was a, it was a crucial move, and uh, it was a pretty good example of Arnold's uh, initiative. And in, you know, let's strike now and strike fast. And that was now, his attitude. Now, people probably see the photo there of Gates and Arnold. And seeing that they're working together here, um, everybody usually uh, immediately thinks of their soured relationship during the Saratoga campaign. Um, but they actually had a very, very good working relationship um, prior to that early on in the war. And Gates at one point even writes that Arnold is indispensable. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the first uh, uh, controversy that arose in the command was that uh, Gates had been given charge of the army in Canada. Um, he uh, set off, he got to Albany, and, and he reported to Schuyler. Schuyler said, well, there is no more army in Canada, so you are now my subordinate. Gates didn't see it that way. He thought he was given the uh, command of the army period, and they had a very sharp uh, disagreement about that. And Schuyler uh, appealed to Congress to clarify, and the Congress backed Schuyler. So um, Gates then had to sort of put his tail between his legs and 
and he resented that. He was a very different type of person than Schuyler. He was much more radical than Schuyler. Uh, Gates was very popular in New England. Um, Arnold was from New England, but he, he, he was friendly with Schuyler. He knew Schuyler from before. And so he had a do, really a juggling act to keep both sides um, satisfied and uh, did, it, did it fairly well. The, uh, Arnold was not himself very, a very uh, tactful person, but he uh, managed to get along with Gates. And, um, and I think that you know, Gates uh, 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 frankly admitted he knew nothing about naval matters whatsoever. So he needed somebody to, to guide the building of the ships and then the sailing of the ships. Right. So eventually he is going to task Arnold with uh, commanding the Lake Champlain fleet and also supervising the construction uh, of these vessels. Um, so what are some of the obstacles that the Americans are going to face when they're trying to construct this fleet? Uh, well, they um, the, the main problem was, I'd say there's two main problems. One was that it was up in the wilderness, uh, the, the Lake Champlain, uh, Lake George area was there were some traders went through there there were a few farms but it was largely wilderness and there were the transportation to get up there was uh, very uh, limited so to get supplies and to get uh, lumber and to get um, uh, particularly the iron and and it's things like pulleys and sails and anchors and so forth was was a problem to begin with then they needed people who were familiar with um, uh, building ships, and they those uh, the uh, shipwrights. There were many shipwrights in America. Uh, they had a big shipbuilding industry all on the coast. To build ships on a lake up in the middle of the wilderness, uh, none of these guys wanted to go up there because they were making good money. Now the war was on. They everybody wanted not so much the uh, the government, but there were a lot of privateers that were looking for, they wanted to get a ship built to get out and prey on British commerce. And uh, the shipwrights were had their hands full and they had to induce, you know, offer large salaries and large bonuses to get them to come up there. And they finally did get enough to, to build the ships, but it was slow going. And it was the, the main part of the, the American fleet uh, really took almost till October to get finished. And on the other side of uh, the lake, the British are going to then be constructing their own fleet uh, and Guy Carleton commanding those uh, forces in Canada rather than moving swiftly before the Americans can prepare their fleet. He chooses to spend weeks building up his own, including uh, what you mentioned a lot in your book, this frigate, the inflexible. Yeah. Yeah. They they had uh, the, the, the rather uh, less consequential problem for the British was that there were um, rapids on the Richelieu River. So they couldn't sail their large ships up from the, uh, and they had a whole fleet that they brought over. Uh, they couldn't sail up from the St. Lawrence River into Lake Champlain, but from St. John's, which was their base, uh, their shipyard uh, was above the, the rapids and that they could sail from there right onto Lake Champlain. Uh, they um, had, uh, already, um, uh, I think, 10 gunboats that were had been constructed and then broken down and put on ships and brought over. So they just had to hammer them together. They had a couple of schooners that they largely had to take apart and, and drag up and put back together at St. John's. And then, as you mentioned, the frigate that they have, and I have a picture of that here. This is where the Americans were at Skeensboro big, um, constructing their fleet, and the British were up here at St. John's constructing their fleet. And this is Lake Champlain in the middle. This is one of the American uh, boats. This is a replica that was um, constructed at the um, Lake Champlain Maritime Museum of the Philadelphia, which was an American gunboat. It's about 50 feet, 53 feet long, I think, total. Um, and it's an idea of the size. These were not battleships by any means. And there's General Carlton, the British commander. This is a frigate. And this is the 
this is kind of a generic replica that was but constructed of a frigate of that era, but it gives an idea of how much bigger and how much more powerful these ships were. Uh, and they constructed this three-masted square rig, really an ocean-going ship with a, a large broadside of a 12-pounder cannon. Um, and that's what um, uh, General Carleton spent a month just putting that ship together. It had been under construction at Quebec City. They broke it down, brought it to St. John's, worked night and day. And, but it was a month lost. And it, instead of attacking in early September, uh, it pushed the whole thing back to October. And uh, anybody that's been up to uh, Lake Champlain area or Adirondacks knows, even in September, it's starting to get cold. So it was, uh, it was moving on towards winter. Uh, and the delay, as it turned out, was um, unnecessary and uh, really a big mistake on Carleton's part. Um, so you mentioned we have the frigate inflexible there and then the Philadelphia, which was known as a gondola. Um, uh, yeah, gondola, it was a gunboat or gondola or um, gondolo, they also called them. I don't know exactly why, but they, they were called a gondola because they were pointed on both ends. So they're not really like a gondola in Venice. Okay. And uh, what were some of the other types of vessels they're going to be using? Well, the Americans uh, wanted a, um, a uh, what they call a row galley, which was about 74 feet long. It's about half again as long as the, the gunboats. And it had, um, um, it, it could be rowed, both of the, the gunboats and, the, um, and the, these row galleys could be rowed or sailed. Uh, it was a handier sailor than the, uh, the, the, than the gondolas, it had more guns, bigger, had a cabin and uh, a quarter deck in the back. So it was a, a slightly bigger, but still not a huge ship. Um, the British, on their, for their part, they had several um, uh, schooners, which were uh, fairly good sized uh, ships of war. They had a... Um, uh, a barge, uh, an artillery barge that they constructed there, which was not a very good ship for sailing, but that they intended to use once they got down to Ticonderoga. It had heavy uh, mortars and cannon, but could, all, could also be used uh, along the way to blast ships in, on the water. Uh, and they had uh, 22 gunboats, which were slightly smaller than the American gunboats. They only had one cannon on them. Americans had three cannon on theirs. Uh, but were the big advantage the British had that all the um, they had the Royal Navy personnel for sailing for shooting the guns uh, you know sh uh, firing a cannon on water is a tricky business because you have to time the the bobbing and the, the swaying of the ship uh, and when you're considering your aiming so um, they had um, um, a considerable advantage, I would say, um, in in almost every regard to 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 what the Americans had. Now, even before the American fleet is uh, fully constructed, Arnold's going to take what boats he has and begin sailing north uh, down Lake Champlain. Um, and eventually, come October, he's going to end up in a we refer to it as a channel between the western shore of the lake and Valcour Island. What is Valcour Island and why does Arnold choose to ultimately make his stand there? Well, I can show that in a map. Here's a map of Valcour Island. I'll go back a little bit here. Here's the northern part of Lake Champlain and uh, uh, Arnold and part of the fleet that he had finished, which did not include any of the row galleys, um, he had, I think, uh, six gunboats. Um, he sailed up and tried to get some intelligence of what was going on. The British were farther up the Richelieu River, which is here. Uh, and he, he maintained the, f the fleet up in this area generally uh, for about six weeks. As the, the season wore on, it became dubious whether the British were even going to attack he decided to pull back to Valcour Island, which is down here and uh, closer to 
Crown Point, which was the American forward post. Um, it was protected. There's a lot of storms that come down the Champlain Valley in the in the autumn, and he wanted a, an area where he could tuck the fleet in and be protected from the wind. Uh, it was also hidden from uh, the British who, be, if they were were to come down the main channel, which would have been here. Um, and so then he had his fleet generally in this area and was waiting for the British to come down the main channel. All right, so it's the morning of October 11th, 1776. Carleton and the British fleet uh, continued to sail up the lake uh, towards Valcour. Did Carleton know Arnold was actually there? Uh, I don't think he did. I, I think that uh, somehow, um, Arnold sort of intuited that Carleton would assume that he'd already retreated, that the American fleet, um, once they got a, any knowledge of the, what, uh, how overmatched they were in terms of uh, firepower and uh, the, uh, the, the size of the British uh, armada, that he would have retreated. It would have been the logical thing to do. And I think he was intent on trying to catch up with them for whatever reason, and that was that's just speculation. Um, Carleton did not send out; um, he did not take the time to explore and have a cloud of uh, uh, canoes or or row uh, boats out ahead of him, scouting all the little um, inlets and islands of which there are many. You can see on that other map um, that he just came down as fast as he could, ho hoping to catch up with the American fleet. And, 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 and destroy them. And um, so he never, there's no line of sight into where the American fleet was stationed from the north. You would have to go way in and look around the corner sort of to see them. So he uh, didn't do that. And basically the British came down, right down straight through here until they ended up down south of Valcour Island, at which point, uh, Arnold sent out several ships and fired at them from behind. And the battle, and then those ships went back up here. He had a line of battle stretched across from the island to uh, the mainland. And the British had to turn around down here with a wind coming from the north, which Arnold assumed that they would come uh, uh, down the lake from with a, uh, when the wind was behind them. Uh, and they had to sail against the wind to get up into this narrow, rather narrow channel. It's about a mile, uh, not quite a mile off of the New York shore. Um, that was proved to be impossible for the frigate. Uh, the one of their, they have uh, two schooners. One of the schooners did make it up into the battle. The gunboats, which were basically rowboats, were easy, could easily be rowed up. They then formed a line across facing the Americans and started a cannon duel, which was the main, the main aspect of the battle that went on uh, for about seven hours all that day, shooting back and forth from a fairly close distance. Occasionally, the, some of the British ships who were down in here would try to shoot through and over their gunboats and shoot at the Americans, but they really, was, they were out of range and they, they just could not maneuver um, tacking back and forth, they didn't have enough room to maneuver up into the battle. Okay, so as night begins to fall now, the cannons will begin to fall silent. And it's at that point that the Philadelphia uh, struck too many times that day, begins to sink. And this is one of the coolest things because I'm sure a lot of people have seen this, but not really known too much about it is the Philadelphia, you know, was uncovered. And I think it was either the late 19th century or early 20th century, correct? Yeah, uh, um, it was uh, salvaged in the 1930s. Right, and now it's on display in the Smithsonian. So yeah. I think that's so awesome that there is something tangible, but you something's still remaining from this fight. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Billy. I, I, in fact, I have some... Uh, oops. Uh, I have an image here. I can get this going again. That's the replica of the Philadelphia. And 
this is the actual Philadelphia while it's being salvaged in the 1930s. And it gives you an idea, it was not, the boats were not that large. And this is as it is today in the Smithsonian um, on display. The, this is the actual boat. And it's, uh, to me, is one of the most poignant relics of the Revolutionary War because it is, it's not a model, it's not a replica. This is the actual boat that the British in that water in 1776, the actual cannon. This cannon in the bow was still loaded when they brought it up. And the, the boards of the, the, the decks of that boat were, you know, absorbed the blood of people that fought for our independence. So it's, uh, I think it's a, a, a remarkable artifact of uh, the Revolutionary War. Yeah, no, it is incredible. Um, so now it's dark. The British begin to go to sleep, thinking that they have Arnold trapped in the next morning should wipe his fleet off the water. What happens next? Well, the the uh, entire uh, the Philadelphia was the worst of the uh, uh, damage to the American ships, but they were all shot up pretty bad, uh, taking on water. Um, a lot of men wounded, a lot of men killed, um, and they felt that the it was a choice between um, res, uh, surrendering or just staying there waiting to be obliterated. Because particularly if the wind changed, the British large ships would have been able to sail down on top of them and would have would have easily settled the matter. Um, Arnold got the idea of escaping, and um, it's still there's still historians scratching their heads over how exactly did he do it. But he was able to he 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 knew the water a lot better than the British did. They, he'd spent a lot of time around there, uh, taking soundings, seeing how deep it was. He was able to go in very close to the New York shore, and uh, essentially go through this blockade that the British had set up. The British because they were unfamiliar with the, the terrain, uh, kept off the shore. They didn't, they, they did, they didn't want to risk going, going aground. Uh, so there was a little gap and the Americans were able to slip through it very quietly, muffled oars. Um, and um, of course, one of the factors was on both sides, most of the men were, were temporarily deaf from all the cannon fire during the day. Uh, got down uh, outside the uh, British uh, cordon, uh, cordon and uh, rode down against the wind uh, until they got a good ways down the lake and the British woke up uh, as soon as it got light they expected to, to obliterate the Americans and uh, there was nobody there. And uh, Carlton threw a fit and went into a rage and they somebody spotted a sail down the lake and then they began a race that lasted two days going south on Lake Champlain back towards uh, Crown Point and Fort Ticonderoga. And what happens? Does Arnold escape? And then uh, another battle broke out. This uh, The original battle was on October 11th. Um, and the two days after that, a second battle broke out. The British were able to catch up because the, the larger ships were uh, sailed faster. Um, and the, um, they fought it out again for uh, about two and a half hours. Uh, Arnold and four gunboats, uh, a few of the gunboats had sunk, a, um, a few escaped and got down to, to Ticonderoga. Um, one of the galleys, one of the larger American row galleys was captured by the British. Uh, but what Arnold had left with, he fought the British off uh, for two and a half hours, and then running out of ammunition, he pulled, he ordered the whole group of uh, ships into a little bay uh, on the Vermont side, what's now the Vermont side of Lake Champlain, uh, and he, they ran aground. They set the all the boats on fire. Uh, when the fire got to the what was left of the gunpowder, they exploded, and so there was nothing left for the British to to capture. Then they they then walked out. The the, the men were saved. You know, he, uh, Arnold was very good about uh, saving his men and not ha not leaving them to be either captured or killed. Uh, and were able to get down to Crown Point, 
crossed over and then they gave up Crown Point and every, they concentrated their defenses in Ticonderoga. And an interesting um, uh, little uh, factoid about that was that the bay where they, he uh, grounded the ships was called Ferris Bay. It was a, ver it was a very small cove, it's about a half mile across. Um, that name was later ch changed to Arnold Bay, and that's the only place in America now that's uh, named in honor of Benedict Arnold. So. And as somebody in our um, our chat here on Facebook had mentioned that, you know, Arnold did it eventually commit treason. He would have had cities, monuments everywhere, roads named after maybe even a state. Yeah. So that is interesting uh, to know that there is something out there that still holds his, uh, his name yeah. uh, in honor of what he did. So Carlton continues on. He doesn't stop. After he clears the, the lake of uh, any Patriot resistance, he continues down towards Ticonderoga. Uh, what's going to happen when he gets there? Well, the, the, the British got as far as uh, um, Crown Point, which is about 10 or 12 miles north of uh, Ticonderoga, and set up their base there. They brought the army down. The, the, the advance guard of the army was about 3,000 men. Um, and were ready. The the, the generals, uh, which who included General Burgoyne, uh, um, and General Phillips, were, um, they were ready to attack. They were they were eager to to give it a try and attack uh, Fort Ticonderoga. Carlton was more wary, and he eventually went down to Ticonderoga. They sailed down. They looked over the situation from a distance, and then they went back. And he then made the decision that he wasn't going to attack. He was afraid that if he began a siege of Ticonderoga, at that, but it's well into October now, it's got close to November. Um, he knew how cold the winters were. He'd been governor of uh, Canada for a number of years and was very familiar with the, um, the, how Lake Champlain would freeze solid in the winter. Um, he didn't want to get stuck. That would have been a disaster to be down there uh, uh, laying a fort under siege and have the lake freeze behind you because that's your only source of supplies. So he thought he'd accomplished enough. Uh, he'd destroyed the American fleet for m the most part. He um, had saved Canada. He was, you know, he considered himself a hero and this was a very successful mission. Why take the risk? Why not just go back wait till spring, come down, they, they wouldn't have any worry about an American fleet then, and uh, attack Ticonderoga down, uh, on that uh, basis in, the, in 1777, which is what happened, only it wasn't Carlton that um, ended up in command. Yeah, and um, yeah, at this point, you know, Trenton and Princeton had not happened yet. Right. The, right, so it's very possible that Carlton wouldn't have even needed to sail uh, up Lake Champlain the next year because the Patriot cause could have completely collapsed. Yeah, that's possible too. Yeah, that's a good point actually. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, I don't know how much information he had about what was going on in New York. It was a long, it was a long route to get information uh, pretty much by sea up from New York up to, to Quebec City or Montreal, but that's definitely true. Yeah, and um, the whole time that the Americans have been building their fleet and the British uh, in the north had been building theirs, Gates and his men at Ticonderoga had been uh, improving or upgrading the defenses of the fort, which, uh, which is in complete dilapidated condition at the beginning um, since the French blew it up uh, in 1759 during the war. So the American forces there are not only building new defenses, they're reusing the old French lines that were uh, occupied by Mont Montcalm's troops during the Battle of Carillon. So uh, I would wonder, like, what when Carlton and his men, they do arrive there, not only do they see the fort, but they see all these outside works, too. So it could have been a repeat, who knows, of the 1758 battle if Carlton decided to assault head on. Yes, I think that that's a good point, because that was had to be in the back of their minds of how, how much blood they'd uh, shed in order to win Ticonderoga. And um, Gates was very good at putting on a show and they had a lot of flags, uh, regimental flags flying. Um, the, he would put the troops in the front lines and with the, the um, bayonet sticking out, he even had some pikes that they had, uh, were gonna use to, to spear somebody coming over. 
and they built readouts all along the um, the peninsula which on which the fort sits. Uh, and it was pretty formidable. And they they had gun emplacements and another fort on the other side, what they called Mount Independence. Uh, they had those joined by a. It's the lake is very narrow there, so they had them joined by a a, a boom and then a bridge. So it looked formidable. Whether they could have held out is hard to know. This there were, a lot of the troops at, at Ticonderoga were militia, and once the redcoats, if they had started to. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a serious charge or a ser serious uh, siege, uh, they may have been able to win, but it's, it's something that'll never be known. So Valcour Island is more so known as a strategic victory for the Americans rather than a tactical one, because clearly they lost the battle. Right, yeah, the absolutely, absolutely. But, was... but they won time for, uh, for Gates at Ticonderoga and also time for, um, you know, the seasons to begin to change. Uh, what is the American response to the battle? And I know Arnold uh, is praised, but he's also criticized for losing the Lake Champlain fleet. Yeah, the, the, that was um, his second in command was David Waterbury, who was a, a, a respectable sea captain from uh, Connecticut. And um, they got along all right until, until Waterbury's uh, ship got captured. Waterbury then criticized uh, Arnold for um, his incompetence in uh, handling and allowing the fleet to be destroyed and his his men to be captured. Uh, and there were several other people that raised um, uh, criticisms, but the people in the know, including George Washington, uh, uh, the the final verdict on it was that it was a brilliant uh, uh, move on the part of Arnold to use the fleet because there's no point in having a fleet and just saying, well, we got a fleet, we're ready for you when you come down, but we're not going to fight. You had a fight and he fought. He, I think he, I think the fact of the battle, the, the fact that they stood up and pretty much fought the Royal Navy to a draw, uh, uh, gave uh, uh, Carleton and the British uh, second thoughts that they, um, how fanatical these people are, that they're willing to face, you know, stand up to the, Brit uh, the Royal Navy. Um, and in general, I think the conclusion was that it was a, it was a successful um, defeat, let's put it that way. It was, uh, um, as in so many of the Revolutionary War battles, Americans lost, but they bought time, they bought um, uh, space for them to continue the, the war. And that's what happened with uh, Valcour. All right, so now to kind of uh, begin to wrap things up, uh, I think the best final question to ask going off of your book title is, well, why do you think this 1776 campaign along Lake Champlain really saved the cause of liberty? Well, I, I think the importance of it, I really uh, focus on two um, factors, two related factors, let's say. One is that I, I think, and I think most historians agree that 1776 was the best chance that the British had to win the war outright. Uh, there were they had chances later on to win a negotiated settlement maybe but if they could have prevailed in 1776 when they had a huge preponderance of force when they had the Americans were at their weakest and most divided um, that was their chance to really win the war and the fact that this campaign was so instrumental in preventing them from winning um, I think makes it just a very very important uh, aspect of the war the other related reason is that after the British went back to Canada, um, Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold took 600 men that they no longer needed at uh, Ticonderoga and marched down partly, uh, sailed partly and, and marched a long way out around New Jersey into Pennsylvania and joined Washington on the other side of the Delaware River where his camp was in December and getting towards the middle end of December they got there. Uh, Washington was trying to make a decision. Um, we can't really know what he was thinking or what he, factors he considered but if, if you figure he knew that the threat from the north was neutralized. He, he had these 600 extra men 
for whatever reason, he decided to cross the Delaware, very risky move, very famous uh, um, attack on Trenton and beat the Hessians and really turned the war around and certainly restored American morale. And some of the guys who fought at um, Valcourt Island in October also crossed the Delaware and fought at Trenton in December. So um, I think that was another important way in which it influenced the uh, outcome of the war. And one of those men to not cross the Delaware though was Benedict Arnold because he's ordered up to Rhode Island by Washington yeah. to command the troops there. But they had a little talk. They had a little talk, you know, before uh, Arnold left to go on that assignment uh, in December. And it would be interesting to know what was said there. Uh, and certainly Arnold would have been the type of guy who would have said, if Washington was saying, I'm thinking of making a move, he would have said, make it, you know, do it. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and I, I think um, Washington got a lot of, uh, you know, he liked Arnold and he, he uh, uh, got a lot of the energy that, you know, from, uh, from this younger guy that's aggressive and, and Washington had, was in a low, low position. You know, he, he, uh, he wrote to his brother, I think in December, uh, I think the game is pretty near up and he was really figured that this may be the end. So to turn it around like that was a quite a phenomenal thing. Yeah, so Valcour Island definitely was the one of the lone bright spots in that uh, dark year. So uh, thank you, Jack, for joining us tonight. And if anyone has any further questions for you, is there a way that you can be reached? Uh, yeah, I have a, a website. Uh, it's called jackkellybooks.com. And I have a contact uh, a page on there and uh, some more information about the book. So. Um, I'm always glad to hear from people. All right, great. So uh, you can join us in two weeks on June 27th for an interview with our own Phil Greenwald to discuss his upcoming release and the next installment in the ERW book series, The Winter That Won the War, uh, The Winter Encampment at Valley Forge. So look out for that. So thanks again, Jack, and thank hey, you thank to you. everyone who tuned in tonight. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.